0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We're recording this episode on April 28th, 2021, hopefully nearing the end of our now more than a year-long experience with COVID-19 here in the United States and and around the globe. And obviously, we've learned a lot of lessons, some hard lessons along the way. And we should put those lessons to good use, thinking ahead to the future and how we might improve uh, our world and the laws that govern us. Now, months ago, I guess it was last fall, the Gray Center hosted a couple of roundtables thinking about lessons we'd already learned at that point uh, from the COVID-19 experience. Uh, Some papers uh, thinking about how we might better prepare for future pandemics, and other papers thinking about how to react uh, in the future to, to emergencies when they occur. And so we're bringing those papers to you soon. Most of them are already posted online. It's my pleasure today to sit down with two of the authors of some of these papers to discuss their uh, research and their proposals for reform on questions of vaccine development. And obviously, given all that's transpired, especially in recent months with the vaccines, there's a lot of interesting lessons just from very, very recent history to delve into. But first, let me introduce the speakers and then we'll move on to the discussion Uh, We're joined by Sam Hollaby. He is the University of Missouri's Manly O. Hudson Professor of Law, as well as a scholar at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University. He teaches and writes on national and international law on the control of infectious diseases. And we're also lucky to be joined today by Kristen Jacobson Osenga. She is the University of Richmond's Austin E. Owen Research Scholar and Professor of Law, teaching and writing on intellectual property patent law, law and language, legislation and regulation. And I might add, she's a senior scholar here at George Mason University's Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. Now, before we jump into the specifics of your papers, we ought to give the audience at least some sort of general background information on vaccine development in general. So they'll have a point of reference as we talk about your your specific research and, and suggestions for reform. Sam, put you on the spot. Could you perhaps just give us a, a very general overview of how vaccines are developed and what the regulatory framework for that looks like?
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the story of Edward Jenner and you know, sort of identifying cowpoxes. Um, being a kind of latent form of smallpox that you could administer to people and prompt their immune response, and um, for about a you know century and a half after that, the, the approach didn't change much. So you identified the pathogen, you either tried to kill it um, and administer it to people to prompt an immune response, or you ran it through a series of chemical treatments to to attenuate it and then prompt immune response without making somebody sick. Um, in the last twenty years, um, sort of computerized models. Um, have given us more sophisticated approaches. Um, and the the current COVID-19 vaccines, or at least four of them, um, were really developed with which much more honed and sophisticated methods. So uh, they actually prompt the human body to produce. The thing that we used to treat uh, through killing or through uh, sort of chemical treatment, um, to prompt an immune response. Um, after that, um, sort of after you test it in animals to make sure it isn't sort of, um, you know, it doesn't cause people to be sick or or, or die. Um, it's given to about 20 people. That's what we call phase one to make sure it's safe. And it's given to about 200 people. Um, again, you're trying to find the right dosage level, make sure there's no serious side effects. And then finally, phase three. Um, which can be anywhere from 2000 to, in the case of COVID-19 vaccine, 60,000, to really test for those rare um, serious adverse events that can follow immunization. Even at that, as we've discovered with the COVID-19 vaccines, there are some you don't catch until they get to the 1 million, 10 million um, you know, more than two million mark, um, but that is the long and short how they're developed. In you know, in the U.S., it's the FDA; in Europe, it's the EMA. Um, there's about 17 what we call stringent national regulatory authorities There are four vaccines for drugs that, um, that, that go along with the producers every step of the way, including checking things at manufacturing facilities. Um, so, none of the current COVID-19 vaccines are what, sort of what I call fully licensed. Um, they're all authorized under emergency use. Um, authorizations. Um, And
0: that's where we stand today. Sam, reading your paper on on the the risk of of side effects and the liability for that, one thing you point out, which I I hadn't thought of, but I'm glad you pointed out, is that there's just a fundamental difference between developing a vaccine versus developing other pharmaceuticals, right? Because with other pharmaceuticals, you're creating them to treat people who are sick. So you have a Sort of a, a you have a, a universe of people who can try this to see if they get better, as opposed to a vaccine where the whole point is to test these things on people who are who are healthy in the first instance and then see what what happens after that
1: yeah they're they're generous sort of legally and medically in the sense that we're given a medical intervention to people who are otherwise healthy um, and that's sort of a lot of further controversy arises uh, ethically legally um, philosophically uh, that's exactly right.
0: That's fascinating. Kristen, anything you want to add to that, that overview? And, and just to add on one more question before we jump into the specifics, you like Sam wrote your papers in the middle of it all. And, and I would love to hear your thoughts and then Sam's thoughts on, on what it's like to, to, to how do you go about the work of researching and, and publishing as a legal scholar on an issue that's really, again, in the middle of things? Kristen?
2: Yeah so uh so Sam's overview is fantastic the only thing I would add only because it helps push my paper along is uh that that process of the the multiple phase trials uh, and the development of the vaccine initially it's very expensive it takes a lot of time and it's very expensive so uh you you could probably guess that from the layout that Sam gave but just to to make it perfectly clear <laughs> it's very very expensive um so so to the other question adam uh writing uh, academic scholarship, uh, on, on a hot issue in the middle of the hot issue. Uh, it's hard, uh, because it's a moving target. Uh, even the paper that, that the Gray Center has posted of mine, um, I, I wrote it in the summer and fall when we didn't even think a vaccine was coming anytime soon. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, I made some changes and updated it in February, uh, Again, with the idea that I might personally get vaccinated sometime in August, maybe if I'm lucky, well, you know, I'm I'm fully vaccinated now. And it's just it's remarkable how quickly everything has gone. Uh, and, and writing scholarship to keep up with that is almost impossible. So my, my paper is basically passe now. And I mean, it's not. Uh, I wrote it in a forward looking way. But but that's one thing that's really hard about writing uh, legal scholarship on a very fast moving issue.
0: It's one thing to be preempted by somebody else writing. It's, it's in this case being preempted by by events, so to speak. Sam, I, I'd be just very curious for, for for how you went about writing this yourself in the middle of such fast changing developments.
1: Yeah, I was I was maybe in a, a little bit better strategic position than others in the sense that you know sort of as early as 2017. I and uh, Sato, or a colleague at Yale, had argued for a global vaccine injury compensation system uh, based in some measure on some of the forces that were at work with COVID-19. Um, so it was taking some of those principles and elaborating upon them in the, in the current pandemic. Um, I, you know, I'll add this, just for a you know, legal scholar audience, to the extent that it's out there, it really helps to think about um, your work in interdisciplinary ways. So medical journals, you know, in my, in my area of writing tend to have these faster outlets, faster channels to review <laughs> in some ways, just like what Kristen articulates that in the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we were able to publish, along with another colleague, Andrew Heinrich, also at Yale, um, a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we had this ability to get out, you know, 1,200 word advocacy um, sort of Summary of, of the article that I submitted for the for Gray Center, and I'd advocate all legal scholars to really think um, about interdisciplinary outlets. We tend to think in terms of law reviews. Um, there are advantages to them, there are disadvantages, including the pace at which they they get out and important uh, findings.
0: That's a great point, and it occurs to me that I haven't. E- Speaking of your papers, I haven't even said what the papers are. So I should at least mention uh, Sam's paper. It is uh, the paper that he wrote with with us. Is is a working paper 21-11. It's titled Solving the COVID-19 Vaccine Product Liability Problem, and it's available on our working paper series. And the first paper that we'll discuss today uh, in, in this podcast is Kristen's paper. It's number 21-18. The title is We Need a Vaccine, Proposals for Regulating Innovation in a Pandemic. And specifically, Kristen, you are focused here on intellectual property. So could you just give us a, an overview of the paper?
2: Uh yeah sure. So um so as I as I mentioned I, I I wrote the paper uh the idea for the paper came to me um kind of last fall last summer uh in the midst of a number of calls uh in in the media and in the national policy space to um, basically devalue patents on vaccines. So there was the idea that we shouldn't grant patents on vaccines, and if people do have patents on vaccines, they shouldn't be able to enforce them uh, and If there are patents on vaccines, uh, governments should be able to take those patents and give the patentee compulsory licensing and it was It was very much a um, there was a big reaction in the world faced with the pandemic, not surprisingly that that we need to get rid of i p so that we can get vaccines in arms, which is, is a perfectly natural feeling. Um, but my paper was a response to that, in that I think that patents are important to get us the vaccine to start with. And so, um, patents uh, basically, there's a, a wide swath of literature that talks to both sides of this, but there's, there's a wide swath of literature that basically says, you know, patents drive innovation. Uh, particularly in fields like vaccine development, where um, it's uncertain, they go through a lot of missed opportunities, perhaps uh, things that don't work. It's expensive to get through the regulatory process. Um, so, so in situations like that, patents are important. So, so I wrote this paper, you know, where there's these calls for no patents on vaccines. My paper is like, no, no patents on vaccines. But really, instead of focusing on that, because there's a lot of academic literature there, I wanted to focus on one particular issue, uh, which was the regulatory issue, um, which was what the Patent Office did. So in the midst of all of these calls to devalue or, or take patent rights, the United States Patent and Trademark Office actually instituted a program uh, to expedite uh, the review of patent applications that covered COVID-19-related inventions, okay? Um, and so, so that's really cool. So this is kind of like the opposite of taking away patent rights. This is actually uh, getting patent rights sooner. And so uh, it currently takes approximately, on average, uh, just about two years from the time you file a patent application until you get a patent. Uh, And so this program, the COVID-19 Prioritized Examination Pilot Program at the Patent Office that was instituted in May of 2020, um, said that if you're filing a patent application that's related to the treatment or prevention of COVID and you're a small company, uh, you could get your patent in 12 months instead of two years. Okay, Um, and you're like, well, is that even an incentive? Like, big deal. So what? You get your patent a little bit faster, but particularly with respect to to vaccines and other COVID nineteen related inventions, um, its highest value is probably at the outset. Right? Uh, We're not going to be super excited about COVID nineteen treatment five years from now. Hopefully, God, I hope not. Right? Uh, But we are really excited about COVID nineteen treatment prevention now. Right. And so the faster you get the patent, the more valuable the patent is to you. So it, it actually is a is a good benefit. Patents also facilitate licensing, which means that the, the inventor can, you know, license it out to a number of different manufacturers, which would also help get the covid treatments uh, and prevention things out. So so that's the that's the program that was um, put into place that I was reacting to. And, and basically, I said, you know, that program's really great, but it's not good enough. So so I don't want to spend too much time talking, but let me tell you the four things I think that they needed to do with that program to make it better and also in a forward-looking way. Because as I mentioned, otherwise my paper is no good anymore. So um, uh, actually, I'm just going to talk about three of them, but the, the three that matter to the Patent Office. Uh, so the first thing um, that I think that's wrong with what the Patent Office did with this prioritized examination thing is limiting it to small firms. Uh, so it's limited to small and micro entities. But the problem is, in my mind, is that these small and micro entities and and there's a there's a very um, logistical definition of what these mean. But basically, it's firms of less than 500 people and there's some other limitations on it. Um, These are the companies that are going to be less likely to have the resources to develop vaccines and to go through that long, extensive testing uh, program that Sam laid out. Um, Also, if you collaborate with an, an entity that isn't a small entity, you lose your small entity status. And one of the things that we've seen through the vaccine development is collaborations. And so, so basically this prioritized examination program, the way it's currently set up and its limitations means that it's really not available to the very types of companies that would be most likely to be developing vaccines. Uh, second thing is I think so we should open it up to all firms, no matter your size, you get to jump the line, jump ahead of, you know, people filing patent applications on plows and things like that. Um, the second thing I, I suggested is that also, because we're seeing such great results from collaborative efforts, is that if you're a collaboration, you should get to jump ahead of the front of the line. So anybody who is working on COVID nineteen things should be able to jump the head of the line, no matter of their size. And if they're a collaboration, they should get to jump to the front of the front of the line. It's like double jumping, I like in checkers or something. I don't know. Um, and so, and, and that's just to recognize the value that what we were seeing through the the summer and fall was collaborations were really driving the best sort of innovation. And so recognizing that and getting them their patents even faster is a benefit and then finally um and i'll I'll wrap up here um is that this should not be a pilot program instead what they should do is they should write this as a permanent part of the pto regulations that as soon as the world health organization or the cdc or some other uh governing institution determines that we are in a pandemic or otherwise in a national health emergency these um, collaboration boosters and jumps to the head of the line aspects should just kick in just instantly. Uh, And the reason being is if it's a permanent part of it, then the patent office isn't going to have to reinvent the wheel the next time the next pandemic comes down. Um, And companies will be looking ahead thinking, oh, hey, we can we can get in fast at the patent office. We already know we can. And so they'll be uh, incentivized to, you know, get on to the innovation uh, necessary and get it filed with the patent office uh, sooner. Uh, because this will just be part of the permanent p t o regulations so adam i'll i 'll stop talking now
0: that 's all fascinating and and i 'd be curious to hear sam 's thoughts on this in just a moment, but just a practical question kristen uh, you said the, i mean the the, the sort of the, the crux of all this is the way that the p t o went about prioritizing certain applications uh jumping the line so to speak could Do you have any sort of could you add any color on on what that meant in practice? Um was it really just do they have to add more staff? I mean, do they do they actually have to ramp up more operations to get this done? Or was it really just as simple as it's just sort of slotting applications in the way you maybe let an air, an airplane get to the front of the line for takeoff? I'm just curious what whether this is the kind of thing that they required a significant additional investment in in sort of government capacity or if it was just sort of rearranging what's already going through the pipeline.
2: Yeah, so it really didn't require a whole lot of rearranging at all within the patent office. Um, and even making it permanent wouldn't necessarily involve any sorts of extra resources because really it's just instead of you being the 52nd patent application examined, you're the first and everybody else just scoots backwards in line. Um, you know, uh, it maybe requires slightly more overhead at the front end at of the office just to push the, you know, the COVID-19 related applications to the front end, but that's all done based on a request basis. So that's not, that's not anything unusual because the patent office already has a a small series, a small set of um, reasons by which you can jump to the head of the line anyway. Um, If, if your inventor happens to be old and about to die, you can jump to the front of the line uh, so that he can participate in the application process, things like that. They've also, uh, had uh has kind of fallen out of use now, but they've had prioritization uh with respect to HIV and AIDS treatments with bioterrorism and so there's there's other places in the patent Office where the same thing already exists, so it's not really a bunch of overhead it doesn't require a whole lot of extra resources at the patent Office maybe an extra you know maybe a person at the front end just in in scooting people to the head of the line, but otherwise not not an expensive uh incentive.
0: Yeah, I was curious because my own sort of minuscule contribution to the debates surrounding regulation more generally uh, in the early weeks of COVID was a I wrote a, a little op-ed that got a little bit of attention, um calling for a sort of government-wide momentary reconsideration of of enforcement priorities across agencies. Um, saying they, you know, now is not the time to change rules, but maybe now is the time to just temporarily change the way that certain rules are going to be enforced, just to make, have agencies use some flexibility to recalibrate what they're doing for just the moment. Of course, that's controversial. And I guess my last question, Kristen, is when this pilot program was originally proposed or announced. Was it very controversial in the industry? Uh, were the, the ones who you'd like to see sort of brought into this program going forward, the bigger players and, and those who are in collaboration, did they criticize very much the the, the, the decision to keep them on the sidelines? I, mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, and it was a year ago, so I don't expect you to know off the top, off the top of your head, but if, if you recall anything from that, I'd be curious to hear it.
2: No, I think it kind of... Flew under the radar. I think the the big players um, had other th- concerns on their mind with the, the calls for compulsory licensing and the marching rights uh, available uh, through the United States government. And so I, I think that's where the focus of the big players were versus this regulatory aspect. They the The vaccine companies and, and developers. I mean, they're they're already jumping through so many regulatory hoops at the FDA that the patent office kind of feels like a, a much lesser hoop, and the fact that they might have to wait a little longer, I think, is a a smaller uh, concern in their mind. But um, but still, something I think that's valuable if we could offer it.
0: This is fascinating. Sam, I appreciate your patience, given all the all the work you've done in the area of vaccines in in general. I'd love to hear your your reactions to Kristen's paper or anything you'd like to add.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I I agree with her, um, you know, her assessment that tailoring the program to size is. Well, I would just find it curious. I think she just, um, you know, she sort of assesses it as being in an unnecessary restraint. But just given the way that diagnostics, therapeutics, and and vaccines are developed, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot sense, I don't think. It is not the sort of, it is not the time window for a small or medium-sized player that is playing the, the role of the barrier for their participation, right? It's their finance relationship with the bigger players, um, sort of, and so I, I agree with her 100% to the extent that the, the program is used. I, I, I think that you can come up with other threshold screening devices. Um, but the size of the entity doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I also think that it's a, it's really a valuable contribution to think through, um, not just what USPTO does, but sort of how all federal agencies, and I guess to your point as well, Adam, how they prearrange their relationships um, in preparation for health emergencies and, and maybe pandemics specifically. Um, and so, I you know, I've done a lot of work on the relationship between FDA and USPTO. So this is not the only place where they sort of interact, right? Sort of the names of drugs and the names of vaccines, right? So you go through a trademark process you go through a, a regulatory process at FDA um, sort of never between shall meet um, and it doesn't it, it just causes headaches for everybody And um, so USPTO and FDA can work together um, on preparatory um, pathways more than they do now same with CDC and in fact sort of some of my writing has been on the relationship between CDC and USDA right so USDA has um, much broader authority over animal health for example um, than, than anybody else does um, and it is course in animal reservoirs, that we're likely to see the next pandemic emerge, and um, so it makes more sense for all of those agencies um, to be to, to be better coordinated than than they are. Um, but Kristen's contribution is is really important. Um, so sort of, you know, this sort of this is not <laughs> Kristen. I've not had three conversations about it paper. Um, so as, I, as for the audience, I will just say this: It's sort of it's you can't understate the role of the FDA as regulator in this in this process, right? So patents are, are a piece. For sure, financial innovation is a piece. Um, but, it, you know, sort of the, the regulatory approval part, which stands separately from patents, is also a really important um, sort of interface to address.
0: That's all interesting. And it raises an interesting question in itself, Kristen. Uh, how do you see this the, the relationship between uh, the PTO and, and these other parts of government, especially the FDA, but also the, the CDC? I mean, sort of both in, in general, but then as things have played out over the last year, I mean, do you have any additional observations on on how those two agencies have worked either together or or at cross purposes, or 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 have, have things been sort of proceeding along fairly well and unremarkably?
2: Um, I, I think I'd have to ag- agree with Sam. They they kind of exist in silos, and they they work together less than I think they should. Uh, there's places where there's there's a definite um there could be some synergies that that don't don't seem to to come together i i don't i I personally don't spend a lot of time outside of thinking about the patent office um I don't think about the f d a until I wrote this paper this year um so i'm I'm kind of coming at the to the party much later and i'm not as well versed but um, it, it doesn't seem, at least from my experience with with studying the patent office, that that they play well with anybody. I, I don't know that the FDA plays well with anybody either. So it's not. I don't think it's the patent office's fault. I just. I think they're they're in silos and they have different purposes and they don't really see where the the connections are.
0: Well, even just in focusing uh, specifically on the PTO, I agree with Sam. This is a fascinating paper and a great contribution. Uh, we're really glad to be able to, to have it up on our, our website, and I hope that it, it does uh, spark conversations for reform. For uh, a little podcast can never do justice to, to the full content of the paper, so I really encourage our listeners to, to look for the paper on the website. As with Sam's paper, which we'll turn to next, uh, Sam, what did you write about? Um, so
1: my paper was focused on sort of you know, and, and I know that they're in the background of this conversation, sort of. All of the arms of operation work speed, right? The effort by the U.S. government, probably specifically defense and, and, health and health services to, um, to, to promote vaccine development and distribution as rapidly as possible. Um, and my paper is all about sort of how it's fine to emphasize those ex ante components, right? So sort of giving the firms the resources they need to develop, sort of giving them facilitated access to people, right? So we facilitated visas to, to foreign citizens who had expertise. Um, on vaccine development, um, or manufacturing capacity to facilitate certain and sort of specific chemical components that, that the firms said they lacked, especially in the beginning days. But just as importantly are the ex post factors that go into availability. Um, and in, in the paper, I really emphasize, uh, sort of the indemnity for serious adverse events following, um, immunization. Um, so, um, for a long time, but certainly at least since 2009 when the world had a experience with H1N1 influenza, uh, we discovered that a lot of vaccine firms just wouldn't sell um, or participate in markets um, where they felt that they faced a serious risk of um, what we in the United States would call toward liability or product liability um, sort of risk for entering into those markets. Um, so even if you had a, a perfectly safe and effective vaccine at the end of uh, Operation Warp Speed's efforts, um, if Pfizer or Moderna or Astra AstraZeneca would not sell um, to Zambia or Uganda uh, or Ghana. It didn't do anybody good. Um, and you've seen that play out in the, in the, in the bargaining between the companies and, and these countries and also with the, the international, I'll call it a brokerage, the COVAX facility. Um, where sort of they, the companies are requiring promises um, for indemnity if uh, those countries want access to vaccines. Um, well, that's, I, I guess, fair enough. It's a fairly straightforward solution. You can just have the government say, fine, um, we will indemnify you if those tort liabilities emerge. Um, but then, then that leaves the people who actually suffer the injuries uncompensated. Um, so we actually do care about things like um, making somebody people. They suffer one of the rare adverse events and they have played out um, in each of the vaccine contexts, right? AstraZeneca uh, and J&J have associations with blood clotting disorders. Um, Pfizer's vaccine is now being investigated for um, heart inflammation um, and that, you know, so we we have to expect rare events like that. We experience them with almost, with almost every vaccine um, and so my paper proposes an international solution to that problem um, uh, establishing a, a, a global no fall. Um, uh, compensation system for suffer who, who suffer vaccine uh, injuries, um, and so it, it works on the model of uh, the, sort of the Boeing uh, Max crashes. It works on the model of the Deep Horizon oil spill, um, where we don't use litigation in the courts, or at least we uh, we deprioritize litigation in ports, and um, create a system where there is a table where people can receive compensation. They submit a simple form. Um, and on the topic of writing about things that are timely, I will say the World Health Organization, in partnership with Chubb Insurance, or specifically uh, an American subsidiary of Chubb called ESIS, has established a, a no-fault system that is meant um, to provide this service. Now, the terms of that are, are less uh they are more restrictive than what my paper proposed. Um, but I like to think that the paper at least played a role in the facilitation of that uh, mechanism. Um, so hopefully that summary is, provides enough detail for people to, to understand. Uh, maybe I'll just end by saying that we have had these systems in the United States for a long time. So since 1986 for uh, any immunization that's recommended for children or pregnant women. Um, and for emergencies uh, since 2005, which was the PREP Act, um, which gives comprehensive immunity to vaccine manufacturers, right? They cannot be sued in the United States. Um, but in the trade is that people who suffer injuries can, can file a claim with um, HHS. Um, and receive.
0: Uh, that's, that's all very, very interesting. And I guess my, my main question for you is if you could offer just a little bit more detail on how programs like this tend to be uh, funded and administered um, because the, 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 they're definitely very... They're 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 simple and, and very productive ways uh for, for paying out on claims, but how does this actually get sort of uh built up, funded up and 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 administered in practice?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um there's approximately thirty-two of these worldwide. And if you count the WHO system, it's you know something like 120. Um Uh, countries, um, so that they can be funded through a a levy on each dose. So the routine system in the United States is funded on through a 75 cent uh, per dose levy, um, for the routine vaccines. Um, you can do it just through appropriations from national treasury. So for um, the PrEP Act, Congress has to actually specifically allocate funds, um, to compensate people. Um, in, in some countries, it's, it's essentially run as a kind of, um, they purchase insurance, right? Through a third-party insurer, right? They pay a premium um, and those insurers uh, pay out if there is a vaccine injury uh claim. Um some of them um have the vaccine manufacturers contribute to the fund, right? So every manufacturer themselves in the market um has to has to contribute to a um, single pot of money. Um so those are the those are the main ways um of financing, right? It's either per low dose levy. Um, the manufacturers, in some sort of pro-rata way, or it's just uh, dedicated through national funds.
0: Thanks for all that, Sam. Kristen, uh, do you have any thoughts on on Sam's analysis and his paper? I'd love to hear them.
2: Yeah, no, I thought it was so interesting. I um, I will admit, I I don't really think much about this. In fact, I the, the first thing I thought when I was uh, reading Sam's paper and, and I've heard him present it uh, before too is. Um, Back when I started uh, clerking at the Federal Circuit down in the basement, they have boxes and boxes from the vaccine cases. You know, from from in the old, in the old days uh, when the vaccine cases were more prevalently coming through the Court of Federal Claims and then through the Federal Circuit, and so just boxes of vaccine claim documents. And I was just like, "Wow, what is what is all this stuff?" Um, and and I was reminded of that when I was reading Sam's paper. I'm like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, now <laughs> that's what those boxes were for." Um, so 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 it was really interesting to me to read this um the the thing that i I, that kind of struck me um and and i don't know adam if i'm allowed to ask sam more questions if that's if that's part of part of this (laughs) is you know um i I really i i i I, I, um you know the the small-scale insurance and and the the no-fault incorporation that i i I, I dug into all that. I was a little, I wanted to hear more. I wanted to know a little more about the the, the mass claims model. Because to me, this feels so different than the Deep Horizon oil spill or the Boeing 30, 737 crash. Just with the this, this so much regulation that goes into the front end, that then to make the back end look like this terrible mass disaster. I, how, can you talk a little more about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a risk in writing the paper and, you know, a lot of very you know, thoughtful colleagues, including you, sort of, you know, sort of made that, you know, sort of at least prompted the point, right? Sort of, you're kind of suggesting that we should worry about the safety of the vaccines. Um, and the, re- the reality is that there isn't a good answer, right? Um, all vaccines, with I think the exception of Hepatitis A carry remote risks of serious adverse events. Typically, it's um, sort of anaphylaxis, um, but it can be sort of more serious neurological disorders. And I just don't, I don't think anybody is served by trying to pretend, I mean, sort of like, we you know, all of us already know the acrimony that surrounds vaccination in general, right? I don't think anybody is served. By mischaracterizing um, sort of the realities and risks, Um, so there there are very remote risks of serious adverse events following immunization. That's just true. Um, We've uh, accommodated those risks through law um, effectively in a lot of countries. Um, There's no reason to shy away from that um conversation um but you're you know you're right i i can't sort of pretend um you know even if i were to analogize workers compensation which is another very common prevalent no-fault system um in the united states and new zealand and lots of other countries um you know you're analogizing to an accident to something that bad happened um and i just again i don't think that anybody is served by pretending um that there aren't sort of risks Remote risks, um, of int- and even now, sort of the warnings that the United States government has mandated on the J&J vaccine, um, don't try to pretend that there's no association with blood clots. They just say, look, the, the benefits way outweigh the risks. Um, and so we're just going to make people aware that this is a risk of the vaccine. Did I answer your question? I think that because I, I, I get it and I totally understand it. And I don't, I don't have a better answer than that. So
2: no, I, I don't know that there is a better answer. It just—it it strikes me as such a different scenario. I actually feel better about the workman's comp analogy. That one to me feels a little more like, yeah, there's I lots of people working, that- but not very many people are actually going to be hurt here. It's, I don't. Know, well, maybe yeah, maybe mean, oil spills don't happen all that often. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so for Deep Horizon, the, the reason it's an appealing model is because it was. You know, it was centralized. There was a very simple claims form. Um, it was a, a form available in uh, at least six languages, I think maybe more. And so it is just the idea that sort of, you know, there are going to be serious adverse events um, in every single country um, that sort of receives vaccine. I mean, that you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is by far um, the most distributed vaccine um, in the world. Um, and, and it is the one for which the adverse events are most really um, and so it, you know i i think in that way we have to think in terms of global reach um but you're right i, I don't want people to think of, of disasters
0: um well, i like the question i want to add because i i think the, the comparisons are interesting i mean obviously there are distinctions of course but there there is something interesting in common with all these things uh, this spring semester uh at Scalia Law, I taught a seminar on sort of advanced issues in administrative law. I co-taught it with the center's namesake, actually, C. Boyd and Gray. And we had just week after week was sort of modules, case studies on different sort of regulatory issues. And one that we studied was the was the original approval of the Boeing 737 Max Dreamliner and sort of the regulatory issues surrounding it at the front end and the back end. And the same with 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 uh, Deepwater Horizon. Uh, in my early career, I was a energy infrastructure lawyer working on environmental issues and, uh, and, and on the environmental impact analysis that has to go on the front end. And the amount of work that's put in at the front end, uh, obviously is done with an eye to what could go wrong afterwards. But there are some things you just can't predict. Some things are, something is, something bad could happen that you can't possibly predict. But. Very much along lines of what Sam said here and what he says in his paper. Even if we can't predict specifically what accidents going to happen, we can predict that someday an accident of some sort will happen. Right? There is almost inevitable risk. Uh, there is risk of of inevitable, um, if not catastrophe, just harm. And the question is, how do you construct a regu- uh, sort of a coherent regulatory framework at the front end and the back end that creates the right ex ante incentives for everybody, right? For the, the people that are developing, in this case, these these vaccines, for the people that we want to take the vaccines. And one, one thing we've seen in recent weeks is how much of the, the debate around vaccines is really a debate about vaccinations and how to get people to 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 decide to take them when we need them. It's just such a challenging and interesting set of, of issues that I and again that I think it's interesting in and of itself for vaccines. But the way that I think it cuts across a number of issues um, is is important, and even for people who aren't necessarily with all due respect Sam and, and Kristen you know focused obsessively on vaccines, uh, there's a lot they can learn here about administration in general I think some some important lessons that go well beyond these two papers. Um, speaking of that, actually, I'd be be curious. I'm often have to remind people that the Gray Center is not the center for the study of administrative law. It's the center for the study of the administrative state, and and our goal is to bring in a lot of people who aren't ad ad law specialists per se to offer their perspectives on different aspects of administration and our round table and and the papers that came out of it are a perfect example of that. Uh, So many people who have written with coming from expertise outside of administrative law per se, but really I think illustrating important lessons and and, and insights for administration generally. That's all build up. to I guess a question that occurred to me during our conversation is, is from your your respective perspective, perspectives, expertise in vaccines, expertise in, in tort and liability, expertise in intellectual property. What do you think are, are the big lessons in administration that either you've learned from this latest, um, this last year's experience, or you think that scholars of administrative law ought to take more seriously. And what is this, from from your sort of perspectives, what, what are the things that, that that we've learned most urgently from from the COVID-19 experience? That was such a muddled question. I'm almost tempted to ask our producer to go back and give me another shot at it, but hopefully there was a, there was a question in there. Sam?
1: Yeah, I, so I think that there's... Um, I think the biggest takeaway, um, certainly from the perspective in which I write, is that there are private sector actors of such importance um, that there needs to be something like a utility analogy um, sort of regulators um, can deploy. Um, and, and to some extent, you can think of sort of Dodd Frank analogies, right? You can think of this sort of too big to fail um, analogy. But the reality is that the vaccine market—I um, mean, depending on the product you're talking about—is sort of it's, it's extraordinarily concentrated, um, and it is extraordinarily important to sort of individual, national, and global public health. Um, and there needs to be a way to think of them and regulate them uh, as utilities um, in, in local health emergencies. Um, and I, I realize that sort of when we think of utilities, we tend to think of price controls. Um, but I think it, it needs to be more um, than that in, in this context.
0: And by the way, are you referring specifically to the pharmaceutical companies, or are you talking about the pharmaceutical companies and and insurance companies? Uh, which which are the what's what's the universe of companies that you're, you're talking about here?
1: Yeah, it could, I mean, it could potentially be, be all of those. I certainly have the pharmaceutical firms in mind, right? So Pfizer, AstraZeneca, um sort of Lexus, Smith, Klein, Santa Fe, um, sort of, you, you can think of Moderna as a little bit of an outlier, but the reality is that Moderna, you know, brought its product to market largely in partnership with NIH, which is, an enormous pharmaceutical company. Um, and so, I, I. but it's certainly, it's the big logistics firms, right? It's FedEx, it's DHL. All of them are playing critical roles um, in the distribution of the vaccines, and the, the airlines. Or, um, and and I, I say that because it's also sort of good to think through as we plan for the next pandemic. You know, we lost a lot by not having all stakeholders at the table. Um, uh, but for sure, I'm, I'm thinking of, of the pharmaceutical companies in answer to your question,
0: Thanks, Sam. Kristen, hopefully there was a, in my muddled question a moment ago. I, I hope there was something in there that, that, that that's worth responding to.
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, but I'll I'll take a shot at it. Um, you know, I think sometimes. When people think about the administrative state, and certainly I, I teach our first year legislation and regulation class. Um, and so so I'm introducing new law students to agencies and administrative law and the administrative state. A lot of times the way that, that, that we're looking at the administrative state is what you can't do. You can't pollute the air. You can't sell drugs that are unsafe. You can't advertise your stuff falsely like this is what agencies do they tell you what you can't do um and and i think one one thing that maybe we can pull out of this not that the patent office did a stellar job of it or anything uh with respect to the pandemic is um the administrative state can also pull some policy levers to incentivize people to do things not just to not do things and maybe maybe we need to think more broadly um about about how we can use our agency powers to make people do good rather than to stop them from doing evil or bad or whatever.
0: Those are both better answers than the question itself. So (laughs) both are appreciated. Maybe we'll end on, on this question. Um, Obviously, as we discussed earlier, it's, it's a challenge an interesting challenge to write about these things in in the, in the middle of, of, of the scenario unfolding. Um, And of course, now the policy and reform debates are happening at the exact same time. Um, on the one hand, I suppose a crisis like this focuses policymakers' minds and, and, and confronts them with a problem, with problems that need to be solved. Um, At the same time, I suppose we should always keep in mind the old line that, that hard cases sometimes make bad law. And, uh, and sometimes the, the, the moment of crisis is not the, the best time to reflect upon reform and a path forward. And so my question is this, um, as there's, The debate around the things that we've discussed today and prospects for reform. Do you think the, the debates today are in a place where, where policymakers are in a good position to move forward? Or do you think some of the reforms that you proposed are going to take a little bit more time, uh, for the sake of public education or just, um, policymaker education, uh, before Congress, before Congress acts? Kristen, I'll let you go first on that one. Uh,
2: okay. Yeah. So, um, Actually, I, w- I would throw it out a little more. Well, no, I will answer your question and also make it a little more global. One of the, sure. the, the last fall, we had a lot of calls to devalue intellectual property to to get vaccines out there. Well, the vaccines are out there now. Um, and yet the calls are still there and are still very loud so so we have india and some other countries have petitioned the wto and to and the who to um to devalue patents and intellectual property you have uh conversations that are happening in, in the united states government about whether or not they should uh interfere with patents on vaccines and other uh medications and and i think I think that the part of the problem with the debate happening in the midst of the pandemic is that the the goals are not necessarily aligning with the conversation. And what I mean by that is what we want is everyone to get a shot. Um, But the discussion about whether or not you shouldn't have patents doesn't get a shot into everybody's arm. Because there's a lot of steps in between that have nothing to do with patents. We have distribution. We have infrastructure. We have liability, like Sam talked about. We, we have a, a, a thousand things between the patent and your arm. And so I think the danger of having the debate, the policy reform discussion in the middle of the pandemic is we're skipping steps. Um and and we're just saying if we get rid of patents, we get shots in arms. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. There's 37 steps in between. So I, I think there's a danger there. Now, are we going to have a different conversation when, when there's no more pandemic? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know that they're going to not skip those steps because those steps are so easy to skip um, because they're, they're logistics and they're not sexy. And, and that, that I think is um, the, Maybe during a pandemic, we'll actually get around to looking at the logistics in a way that we don't look at the logistics when there's not a pandemic. But but right now, even in the pandemic, we're not looking at the logistics. That's a very long rambly answer.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Kristen. Sam, what about you on on the issues that you're focused on? Do you think the the debates have ripened to a point where you'd you'd like to see reform immediately? Or is this uh, a longer term case for reform?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the debates, the debates have ripened. I think what I would say is that the evidence is not, right? So we have, you know, one of the most, I mean, it's been horrendous, but valuable research opportunities, right, in the history of the world, right? You have, in a single year, the massive deployment of various kinds of public health interventions, um, some of which can be proven to have worked better than others. Um, and so I think we need, you know, at least a five-year period um, where the evidence um, is, is crystallized, right, and researchers are allowed to do their job before, you know, taking <laughs> any significant uh, actions. For example, there's a conversation right now, you know, led by the, the EU mainly, but there, you know, others have joined about a pandemic treaty. Um, that may be a good idea later. Um, I I think now is not the time to have that conversation. Um, I will also say that I'm not, you know, a lot of what we're going to learn um, are the limitations. Going back to your first question about sort of the reach of the administrative state, right? So in the United States, we are reaching, I think, now a point where we are no longer facing a supply-side problem on vaccinations. We are reaching a demand side problem on vaccinations. Um, And sort of that doesn't, I mean, you can pass laws that encourage communication about risks and benefits, um, and you can pass laws that provide public funding for, um, you know, sort of advertisements about masks and distancing. Um, but that is, that is almost all you can do, right? Um, so there isn't much in terms of the force of, of the state, um, I don't think, that's going to be vindicated. So a lot of the conversation has to be about sort of, non-law sources of, of public health management. And um, so those are the two things I would say in
0: answering your question. Thanks, Sam. I'm sure that, that we will learn a lot even in the months and years to come. Uh last fall's roundtables won't be the Gray Center's final contributions to the discussion. We're actually hosting another round table in the fall on sort of still more lessons learned from COVID. Um a round table in the fall, I suppose the papers will come out sometime around about this time next year and it'll be interesting to see what the world looks like and, and the state of these debates. It's funny to think that when we first uh the three of us first came into contact on these things, it would have been about a year ago this time, when COVID was just in its very early stages. There was so much uncertainty. And I'm grateful to both of you for being uh for being gamers in volunteering to to write papers uh, so early in this and it takes sort of to think seriously about this at, the state of knowledge at the time and with an eye to reform ahead both these papers are just great great contributions to the debates um even as things change so quickly i think the 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 lessons learned in your papers and the proposals for reform are going to long outlast the the immediate um the immediate crisis and so i'm grateful for that just to remind our, our audience again the papers uh by kristen osenga is We Need a Vaccine, Proposals for Regulating Innovation in a Pandemic. That's working paper 21-18. Kristen, thanks for joining us today, by the way.
2: Oh, thanks, Adam.
0: And the second paper that we discussed is by Sam Hollaby. It's titled Solving the COVID-19 Vaccine Product Liability Problem, and it's uh, working paper 21-11. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks, Kristen. And I should just add, as with all of our working papers, these were just sort of the preliminary versions of these papers. And so I really encourage our listeners to, to look for, for where uh, these papers or, and, and others by our two guests today appear in, in final publication. I just want to say thanks as always to our audience for, for tuning in. Uh, if you did enjoy this podcast despite some of the meandering questions. Uh, We'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review and and five stars. We'll even take four stars, uh, which will help other people find this podcast. And please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.